an update on the NRA, and an interview with the Dispatch's David French on the Supreme Court and red flag laws. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski, founder of The Reload. And before we begin, let me just remind everyone that Reload members actually get this episode early, at least 24 hours early. This this weekend, we're having a big 4th of July sale, so uh, I think people should jump on into that and get their 25% off before that ends. Uh, And members will have exclusive access to this podcast during the weekend. So uh, let's get right into the news of the day. First, uh, I was at the NRA board meeting this Saturday. Uh, It was the first one they had since the bankruptcy strategy uh, failed uh, when the bankruptcy was dismissed by a federal judge uh, just a few weeks back. And um, the NRA was clearly trying to move on. I was the only reporter uh, to attend the meeting and as far as I could tell, there weren't any um, average NRA members there either, but uh, the meeting did not mention the bankruptcy uh, filing, and it didn't mention at all, no one brought up the uh, New York case against the NRA, the case where uh, Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, um, and a longtime NRA opponents, uh, political opponents, is seeking to dissolve the group over accusations of financial impropriety by top executives, including CEO Wayne LaPierre. Um, But the group did talk about their political efforts. Uh, Jason Umay, the head of uh, the Institute for Legislative Action, which is the NRA's uh, political arm, their lobbying arm, Uh, He gave a frank and uh, realistic roundup, I thought, of uh, the state of play, I suppose you would say, on uh, the Second Amendment, especially in regards to uh, President Biden's appointment of uh, David Chipman, a a gun control activist who's worked for uh, Gifford's uh, gun control group um, in recent years, uh, to the ATF. Uh, He said that There are four key senators still on the fence on that one, and I believe they were Toomey, Manchin, uh, right, as you'd expect, and then uh, King and uh, Tester as well from Montana. So uh, Umay said that the fight's going to come down basically to a 50-50 vote potentially, a 51-49 vote maybe. Um, I've actually spoken with uh, uh, Toomey's office, and they told me that he's – has not made up his mind yet on whether he'll vote for Chipman, but has uh, concerns about the nomination. So we'll see where he goes. Senator Collins from Maine, the Republican, uh, moderate Republican, said she's not going to vote for Chipman. So it will likely come down to whether Democrats can actually get all 50 of their senators on board with this nomination. But Umay also talked briefly about the effort by President Biden to um, through executive action, institute new um, powers for the ATF, uh, especially in regards to what classifies, what qualifies as a firearm. Uh, you know, the president is trying to broadly expand that definition in order to give the ATF more power to go after so-called 
uh, ghost guns, which are, you know, unserialized homemade firearms, uh, which are legal for people who are not prohibited persons. They aren't felons to make in their own home. I did a, a trip recently to Florida to actually uh, cover the gun makers match where people who um, enjoy doing that, building their own firearms, uh, all got together to do a, a competition. So uh, you can read about that at the in the member section on the, on the website. But uh, President Biden wants to crack down on that because he believes uh, it's leading to more criminals building their own firearms. So um, he wants to expand the ATF's power in that regards. And then he also wants to uh, effectively ban uh, all pistol braces, stabilizing pistol braces, um, and require that those in current circulation be registered under the National Firearms Act, where people would have to pay a $200 fine um, or fine, a fee, a registration fee, um, in order to continue to keep the guns they already own with pistol braces on them, or they would have to surrender those guns or dismantle or destroy them. Um, so uh, Ume said that those proposals are likely to garner several hundred thousand comments. The pistol brace one is already over a hundred thousand comments. I actually left one myself um, at the request of the ATF or at the suggestion of the ATF, um, which you can read again in the member section of the reload.com. But uh, he doesn't believe uh, Ume that uh, it's a guarantee. Those comments while they are overwhelmingly negative will actually stop the administration from pushing through the proposals to change uh, federal regulation in order to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So Umay had a fairly uh, blunt and, and realistic uh, description of the situation, I, I think, in my view at least. And um, he went on to say that the, the NRA, while obviously um, in the context of this is happening, is still in serious legal struggle with uh, New York is in Ume's estimation, still the most powerful gun rights group in the country because they are um, having great success at the state level. He pointed to um, the uh, passage of permitless carry in Texas uh, as an example of this and in many other states actually just recently. Um, and he said essentially that the NRA is, you know, the one in the room across the country with lawmakers while they're making laws um, or um, formulating questions for people like Chipman at hearings um, and that nobody else in the gun rights community has that level of influence um, and is able to get their talking points in front of and used by um members of the U.S. Senate uh, was one of the examples he gave. So that was his speech. Uh, a few days later, I found out that during executive session, uh, and this is reported on the, the reload.com first before anywhere else, but during executive session, the announcement was made that the group wants to pursue a $5 million fund um, in order to supplement or potentially replace their directors and officers insurance, uh, which is insurance that uh, protects members of leadership at organizations like the NRA or in businesses from lawsuits stemming from accusations that they haven't 
lived up to their fiduciary responsibilities. Um, and so certainly the NRA board and uh, its leadership like Wayne LaPierre could f face those kinds of um, suits uh, brought either by the New York Attorney General herself or by uh, potentially uh, NRA members in a class action suit. There's already someone, uh, there's already a lawyer attempting to intervene in the New York case for this purpose, uh, or at least partially for this purpose, uh, with a few NRA members on board. Um, it's not clear, obviously, where those legal actions are going to end up, but uh, obviously there's a risk there. And apparently Lloyds of London, who had been providing or is currently providing uh, DNO insurance, as it's called, to the NRA leadership, has decided not to renew their policy with the NRA. And so this fund was created as a way to either replace that coverage or potentially supplement uh, new coverage from a different company uh, down the line. It's not clear exactly which way that's going to go. Although um, as NRA board member, Phil journey told me, you know, if Lloyd's of London won't ensure you who the hell will um, implying that, you know, Lloyd's of London has a certain reputation for taking on almost any sort of risk uh, under the right circumstances. So uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not the NRA can actually replace that insurance and how much these individual board members are liable for expenditures made uh, under their supervision that are found to be, um, you know, not in the interest of NRA members, you know, things like private flights uh, for personal uh, travel or, you know, obviously there's been a lot of contention about fancy suits um, bought for Wayne LaPierre by Ackerman McQueen, the former uh, NRA contractor and, and um, you know, different luxury trips made around the world um, on the NRA dime. So that's something to look out for the NRA, uh, the NRA in the long term for sure. Uh, but we'll, I'll be continuing to cover that. I'll be continuing to bring you the latest news uh, often before anyone else, including anyone in any major publication you could think of, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Uh, we beat them all on this story for sure. So I plan to continue to try to do that in the future on not just NRA stories, but all sorts of gun stories going forward. And that's hopefully why you might consider signing up for uh, a membership. But Anyway, today on the meat of the podcast, we are going to have David French from The Dispatch, who has had a long career uh, litigating uh, Second Amendment issues and following along how the court has handled the topic, and we are going to discuss that with him. He's also an early uh, advocate, uh, at least on the right, for red flag laws, and we'll ask him a bit about how he thinks that movement has gone to date and what concerns he has with the laws that have already been passed in a number of states. So well, without further ado, let's get on to the interview with David. All right, we're here with The Dispatch's David French. Uh, David's going to talk with us a little bit today about uh, the Supreme Court's big gun case, as well as uh, some of the other gun cases going on around the federal uh circuit courts and uh and maybe a little bit about red flag laws as well so hey welcome david thanks for coming on thanks yeah for thanks being for having me show 
<laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Lots of uh, lots of Supreme Court developments over the last week or so. Not not dealing with guns, but just in general. So I've been very busy. <laughs> oh yeah, responding oh, yeah. to that, writing about that. Yes, you have uh, obviously had a long uh, interest in the court and uh, and what goes on there. Can you give us a little bit about your background for, for listeners who might not know as much yeah. about you? So I'm a senior editor at The Dispatch um, and columnist for Time Magazine. Before that, I was a National Review, uh, senior writer at National Review, and I was, before that, a constitutional litigator for a long, long time. So I graduated from Harvard Law School in 1994, and I think I had my first constitutional I worked on my first constitutional case, not Second Amendment related, but constitutional case when I was still in law school. So I've uh, been working in the arena of constitutional law for a really long time, mainly doing First Amendment work, uh, mainly doing uh, Fifth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment, sort of the um, classic Bill of Rights type work that uh, civil liberties lawyers do. And did that a ton, and uh, and and I would say a big focus of my writing since I stopped litigating has been constitutional law, and also a gun owner, and have cl- paid very close attention to the legal developments in the Second Amendment. And part- I'm mostly interested in and follow most with the most interest the constitutional developments. Um, I live in Tennessee, and Tennessee is. You know, one of the most permissive states in the union when it comes to to gun laws. Um, so we have a real atmosphere, a real gun rights culture here in the state. I've sometimes joked to people that you you know you get issued an AR when you cross the state line, uh, but it's a it's a it's a definitely a gun rights culture here in this state. Um, I would say even more than a lot of red states. Yeah, uh, yeah here certainly. in Tennessee, um, and. I think there's a lot to talk about on the constitutional front when it comes to the Second Amendment lately. Uh, It's a rather huge development um, with the Supreme Court taking up uh, its first ever gun carry case out of New York. Um, Now, New York has uh, what's called a uh, May issue gun carry law. So Mm -hmm. uh, if someone applies for a permit there, um, even if they go through all of the requirements um, and pass the training that's required past the background check that's required they can still be denied at least the full right to carry a gun in new york um or or the privilege or whatever you want to call it obviously there's a long-standing debate over over that exact topic which which is exactly what the supreme court is slated to decide here how far does the right to keep and bear arms extend outside of the home um and so uh you know there there's Eight of these laws across the country. It's not a it's not a very popular policy, but it is uh, in place in some of the biggest states: New York, California, right. Massachusetts, uh, Maryland, um, and and so it affects quite a lot of people. I think about twenty five percent of the country by population lives in a May issue state uh, where essentially they um, aren't guaranteed that they'll be able to obtain a license even if they qualify. Uh, under the the technical uh, guidelines, because uh, essentially the decision is left up to uh, government officials. Uh, in New York, I believe it's left up to local judges. 
um, who issue the, the permits, and they can issue you different kinds of permits. And your New York system is a little bit different from some of these other states, but effectively it's the same principle of uh, the judges can decide whether or not you actually get to carry a gun anywhere <laughs> just based off of their own subjective uh, determination. Um, a lot of places uh, require what's called a good reason to uh, obtain one of these gun carry permits, which is different from most of the rest of the country, which is either what's called shall issue, which is uh, where you go through the permitting process, you pass the background check and their the training requirements, and then the government has to issue you a permit. Mm -hmm. That's what most states have at this point. Um, including where I am in Virginia. But then there's a, a third policy called uh, permitless carry or constitutional carry, um, as activists like like to call it, um, where you don't need a permit at all to uh, carry a gun concealed, that uh, as long as you are legally allowed to possess a firearm, so you're not a you know a convicted felon or uh, someone who's been convicted of, of domestic, domestic <laughs> misdemeanor domestic violence uh, or... Mm -hmm. Um, been, you know, uh, committed to a mental institution as a threat to yourself or others, uh, then you can carry a gun uh, without having to obtain a permit first. That's what they have down there in, in Tennessee where you are. Yep. As of yesterday, I mean, the law was passed earlier in the year, signed earlier in the year, but went into effect, I believe, yesterday, July 1. So Yeah. And so that's becoming much more popular. 21 states have that now. But um Essentially, what the Supreme Court is going to decide is whether or not this more restrictive policy may issue is constitutional or not, whether or not it violates the Second Amendment. Where do you see the court going on this question? Yeah, so this is really interesting because when you talk about the Second Amendment right, let's give people a little bit of constitutional background. That was a great background as to what are, what are the various carry regimes that exist very few people realize that the vast majority of your gun, your concrete gun rights protections are coming from state law right now. So state laws, if you're a gun owner, state law is shaping your rights more than anything else. Because right, the Supreme Court's gun rights jurisprudence, since Heller and McDonald, two cases that one settled that there is an individual right, uh, that the Second Amendment protects an individual right, uh, and McDonald, which incorporated that right, and in other words, requires states and local governments to protect that right, that involved keeping a handgun in the house for self-defense. That, that's if you're going to say what does the what under current Supreme Court jurisprudence is clearly, absolutely protected by the Second Amendment, it's a one-sentence answer. Answer: Having a handgun in your home for self-defense. Right. It's really not very that's, expensive at this point. No, that's it. That is it. And then the Supreme Court, since the Heller decision, has not taken a meaningful case until it took a case recently that which it then went when New York changed its laws. Yeah, <laughs> uh, ended up dismissing the case as essentially moot. Right, and I think so I want to talk about that a little bit later too. Some of the strategies that we're probably going to see uh, used sure. to counteract uh, gun rights activists in court um, after the Supreme Court case is decided. Um, especially if it's decided in the favor of of what gun rights activists want. But, but yeah, um, certainly the court has not been very talkative on the Second Amendment to the point where uh, many of the justices have uh, publicly complained about this fact. Uh, yeah. um, Thomas has 
called the court's treatment of the Second Amendment, uh, you know, tr- as though it were a second-class right that they've litigated right. the First Amendment a million times, but they basically had two cases in the entire history of the Supreme Court that dealt with the core issue of what the what really only only Heller really dealt with the core issue of what the Second Amendment even means and what it protects. Uh, you know, you had Miller before that, which sort of was uh, you know talking about the fringes of. Of, didn't really make a, 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 a succinct ruling on what the Second Amendment actually means. Um, and then and then McDonald, as you said, really just incorporates uh, Heller to the states. Right. So the, the court has not spent much time discussing the Second Amendment at all uh, up to this point. And so um, now we have a significant case. Uh, this gun carry yeah. case. What, so we have basic standard of you have a right to the most commonly owned, basically, category of firearms for self-defense uh, well, inside your this, own home. So here, this, this, is, this is where it gets interesting. Okay, so the actual holding of Heller, like the, the, the pure holding of it dealt with that, uh, the, the D.C. law regarding um, – handguns for in the home in the right. home for self-defense and then there's a lot of dicta so you in if you have any case a supreme court case ha, always has a holding and the holding is this precise rule announced by the court and then what's called the dicta is sort of all the reasoning around it like it's all the rhetoric around it and so in the heller case the precise holding was this super narrow thing but there was also a lot of sort of discussion about the history of the Second Amendment, sort of, you know, um, Scalia talks about there are certain kinds of regulations that are going to be fine. And there are certain kinds of regulations that are probably not going to be fine. And all of this is the dicta. So, for example, and this is something we'll, we can get to when we talk about like assault weapons bans, Um there is this discussion of guns that are in a common use for a lawful purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay, if a gun is in a common use by law-abiding, you know, common law-abiding use, that can those kinds of guns be banned? And so that's that's one issue that is not at all related to what the Supreme Court's going to decide. So what's the Supreme Court's going to decide in in the uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association case that's coming up next turn is just really basically when the Second Amendment says keep and bear arms, does it mean and bear outside the home? Do you have a right to bear outside the right. home? And, Which and, is kind of comical. And so what... I, uh, almost. Uh, the, the, yeah. The, this is... You know, I had Charles Cook on uh, the previous... Uh, episode of the podcast and we talked a little bit about just the second amendment and like and a little bit about what it means and you know to me uh, i guess you'd call me a, a textualist just because like the second amendment is so plainly written uh, in my mind I, I know that you know there's obviously a lot of discussion about the preparatory clause and the, the well-regulated militia where they state why the second amendment matters essentially but the the actual clause that includes the right is, is very straightforward. It's, you know, people have the right to keep and bear arms. Uh, like right. bear, what, well, what is bear arms? It's just, you get into these kind of ridiculous uh, arguments if you, 
that just try to force people not to read the plain language. <laughs> Does bear right. arms mean that you can uh, bear arms outside the home? Well, I mean, isn't that extremely obvious? I, I you know, uh, not to discount you know, so- anyone's like good faith argument. Like, yeah. It just seems to me just reading the text of the amendment is very straightforward. Now, I, you know, when it, obviously you could say that about the first amendment in a lot of places and, you know, I don't, I don't discount the idea of like having to figure out what infringement means. Um, right. I think that's more complicated than just, you know, every single gun law that has ever exist is an infringement and therefore they're all unconstitutional. Like, I think that there's more discussion to be had than that, but this idea that like, what do, does bear mean outside the home? Well, I mean, doesn't it have to, right? Yeah. I mean, let me put it this way. I would fall out of my chair in shock if the Supreme court did not strike down the New York yeah. law. Um, now, does that then mean that everyone in New York gun owners can say, all right, I'm going to get my permit? No, these states are in localities are very um, – those states and localities are very creative at fallback sure. measures. So, so okay, what, what amount – so if it's a permit and I'm required to give you the permit, if you jump through the hoops, how many hoops are we going to make you jump through? Um, how expensive is this permit going to be? Yeah. So – that will just sort of start you on another journey. And you saw that happen in D.C. A New York- uh, D.C. Oh, did yeah. this. So if you're a New York gun owner, it's like you'll get a win in all likelihood. In all likelihood, you'll get a win. And then you'll start a but new so journey. I, I, and that new journey is yeah, going yeah, yeah. I mean, to be, be okay. navigating the new system. Certainly. Uh, they'll, be, they'll come up with something to try and test the boundaries because they don't agree with the concept. Um, yeah. You know that, and that happens uh, on on all sides, of course, with all issues. But, but, um, uh, but, of course, you know, the gun control people are uh, people who want stricter gun control are not just going to uh, lay down and, and go away because the Supreme Court no. issues a, a ruling. They they didn't do that after Heller, and it's unlikely they'll do that after this case. But what I really want to get to here is what what do you envision the most likely. Uh, ruling being, I mean, I think there's two important questions, right? There's, will they strike down the law um, or will they punt? It seems like you think they're going to strike down the law, um, you know, because they mm-hmm. could do something like uh, what they did with uh, 2016's, uh, the case out of Massachusetts, uh, Serentreno, I forget how to pronounce it, but it's the stun gun case where, I mean, there's yeah. a unanimous uh, decision that said effectively, like, you know, of course, we reaffirm what, what was already said in Heller, which is that the Second Amendment applies to modern uh, uh, weapons and not just ones that in, were in existence at the time of the ratification. Um, but they didn't real. It was a two-page ruling that said sent sent it back down to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, and and it didn't really give a lot of new insight into the case. Um, uh, you know, no. you could see something like that perhaps happen in this case. Um, or you could see them strike down the law, but the question then is, how far do they go in striking it down? Uh, you know, do they just say you have to be shall issue? You have to give you can't you have to get rid of this good good reason clause sort of subjective uh, decision making by government officials involved here, uh, or do they go all the way to permitless uh, care that you can't even? No way. Yeah. <laughs> no way they're going to permitless. 
Um, so I, what I think will happen is they'll essentially take the true may issue states. If you're a true may issue jurisdiction is one that that quite literally is you don't get it. You don't have a right. It is completely yeah, up to us. Like Hawaii. Um, I think that will go away. That will go away. Now, the what kinds of conditions that can be placed? In other words, so a shall issue is a little bit of a misleading kind of description because it's not shall no matter what. It's it's here we have a permitting process, and if you jump through the hoops, then you get it. Then the, the legal entitlement to receive the permit is created when you finish the permitting mm-hmm. process. So I would expect that what the court is basically going to do is going to say, it is to, up to you to create a permitting process, but they're going to let they're going to give some basic guidelines to the permitting process that um, limit that remove discretion. In other words, that remove a discretion of a state official to deny it, and that would be my best guess. So, which all that's going to end up doing. It's really interesting because this is actually – what will actually end up happening, in my view, is that the court will rule for the Second Amendment, but in such a way that doesn't take care of 95 percent of the controversies over the Second Amendment. <laughs> so, Classic. Classic uh, Roberts Court. Man. It, will, it, will rule for, um, it will rule for the right to bear arms. Uh, it will not tell New York State what a proper permitting – process looks like it will tell it what it doesn't look right. like then then it, new york will put in place a new system that will probably be subject to another legal challenge but a an important legal principle will be established and that will be that there is a right just as there is a right to keep a handgun in the home for self-defense there's going to be a right to bear a handgun handgun outside of the home for self-defense subject to undefined state regulation. And then that's going to lead us. It's funny because, um, you know, there's this sort of school of thought that the Supreme Court normally has that it does not ever just resolve all the legal issues at once or rarely does. Very rarely does it do that. And usually when it does that, it's super controversial, like Roe v. Wade, for example. But so the Supreme Court rarely decides everything at once. It decides things incrementally. And then it kind of sits back and it watches and it watches what the, there's a phrase that the law mature. How will the law mature in the lower courts? And the reason why it does that is sometimes the lower courts reach legal conclusions sort of on their own that the Supreme Court agrees with or at least doesn't have a big problem with. And it's just going to sort of let stand out there. Um, but, you know, one of the jokes that I've heard about Supreme Court jurisprudence, uh, Second Amendment jurisprudence is it's not that they just let the law mature. Like the law has grown a beard and has learned <laughs> to drive. It is There's a lot of maturing that's gone on and it's time for the Supreme Court to step in. And there's two other areas to look for after this very, I expect, and you know, you can have me back on after if I'm wrong, uh, but I expect it'll be a limited ruling that you can bear arms. But then there's going to be there's a couple other interesting tests questions. One is assault weapons bans, and which leads to one question, and the other one is what is the Second Amendment? Yeah, test? that's what I was going to ask you. Like, what do you think that they will establish an actual 
standard to judge Second Amendment cases by, because I think that's one of be that's been one of the biggest criticisms of Heller is that it didn't yeah. really do any of that. It just kind of decided that this one really uh, rare law in D.C., which was a total handgun, right. which really only existed in like two part two cities in the whole country. Um, that you know, it set this base level of okay. At least the Second Amendment protects this this thing, and these these particular extremely rare laws are not constitutional. But it doesn't give any guidance for how courts should uh, determine whether or not a law violates the Second Amendment because it's it's really a very much a, a compromise ruling uh, that goes out of its way to say it's not implicating certain federal laws like the National Firearms Act. Um, right. And, and, you know, pretty much all of the, the fi- federal firearms laws to that point, even though you could certainly, depending on how you read Heller, you could implicate those laws as being potentially unconstitutional. If you go with, uh, you know, Kavanaugh's uh, text history tradition standard, um, because the court rejected balancing tests for the Second Amendment. So, OK, well, what is the new test? And I think effectively most lower courts have decided to just use a a balancing test that uh, is um, somewhere, you know, below intermediate intermediate scrutiny, and um, which is a really loose standard, effectively. Um, yeah. But, and then other courts, uh, as we've seen in California just recently, here in this, we can transition into talking a little bit more about the the future of the the uh, Second Amendment litigation overall. But other courts uh, like. Judge Benitez in, in California have used much stricter standards or Kavanaugh and his dissent in Heller too, uh, where they look at Heller and they say, well, uh, or Barrett even uh, in her in her case about the nonviolent felons, lifetime uh, gun ownership ban. But, you know, you see them come up with these other standards and, and you've just kind of seen a mishmash of standards across uh, the court system and, um, you know, Benitez says that uh, basically whether or not something is in common use uh, for self-defense, that's the Heller test. And then Kavanaugh says text history tradition. uh, Barrett says maybe text history tradition, maybe intermediate scrutiny, uh, you know. Uh, And and so do you think that they're really going to clear that up and set up any kind of standard to go forward uh, with uh, on Second Amendment cases? Maybe, probably not. <laughs> Maybe, probably not. They can. They can. Um, but here's – so different – let's put it – this is going to get a little – let's peel the onion a little bit. Um, so there's a, kind of, there's a kind of legal challenge, which is like an assault weapons ban or a large capacity, so-called large capacity magazine ban, where – there's an argument you don't need a test at all, like in the in the sense of when I say test, you don't need to decide if it's strict scrutiny, which is the most restrictive on the government, rational basis review, least restrictive on the government, intermediate scrutiny, intermediately <laughs> restrictive on the government. That you say, like as you said, text history and tradition says if a, it, you can't, you just can't ban a gun that's in lawful uh, common use for a lawful purpose. So. You don't have to apply strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny. You don't have to apply rational basis review. You just can't do that. You just can't ban a gun in lawful use, uh, in common use for a lawful purpose. 
That's one school of thought, but that even that, you still have to have a test because there are other kinds of restrictions. So, you know, for example, like a bump stock ban, um, which, you know, bump stocks are not all that common. They're really not. I mean, you might have a decently large number of them if you add them all together in the whole country, but as a percentage of gun owners, for example, a bump stock is very rare. I would say most gun owners don't even know what a bump stock is, um, much less have one. And, and so, um, you know, so in those kinds of circumstances, there's still going to be a need for a test. There's going to be a need for uh, to decide a level of review. Now, if you're a gun owner um, and you're a gun rights advocate, you're, you, you, when you think of tests, think of it like this. Rick scrutiny, if I'm challenging a government regulation, I'm almost always mm-hmm. going to win. If it's a rational basis review, if I'm challenging a, a gun regulation, I'm almost always right. going to lose. If it's intermediate scrutiny, I'm still almost always going to lose. Because <laughs> one of the interesting, the, this intermediate scrutiny test is really not all that strict, truthfully, to mm-hmm. for the government. And so as a general matter, a lot of the, the Second Amendment cases in the lower courts have applied some version of a, a, in the range of an intermediate scrutiny type standard. And under an intermediate scrutiny, if that's the if that's the test, if that is the test, um, as a general matter, assault weapons bans are, have been upheld. As a general matter, under those kinds of reasonings, large capacity magazine bans right. have been upheld. Well, it under depends that. on the judge. Benitez and also so, said that it wouldn't. California's assault weapons ban wouldn't pass intermediate scrutiny either. And so Barrett said that. Yeah. On, well. Uh, uh, what the the nonviolent felons ban as well, so it kind of yeah as as usual it depends on. But the court, the actual sure. court decisions have been largely by and large upholding assault weapons bans, and so um, that's why the te- the test matters a huge deal. The test is right. a huge deal, but then the other question is, do you even apply that test? And so a lot of Second Amendment advocates say, wait a minute, Heller. If you look at that dicta from Heller, the common use for a lawful purpose, that is the test. That's the test. It's not, you know, uh, compelling governmental interest advanced by least restrictive Mm -hmm. means. It is, which is strict scrutiny. It is, is it common use for a lawful purpose? There's the test. And so that's one of the things that the court is probably ultimately going to have to decide when it comes to things like an assault weapons ban or comes to things like a, a large capacity magazine ban but a lot of gun regulations don't implicate flat bans like that sure. they might be you know what's your permitting process um what is your what is the standard you know what's our background check standard like what offenses count as offenses that can remove from you the ability to carry a, hand, a handgun and those aren't you know, those aren't banning a category of weapons. Those are limiting your access to otherwise lawful weapons. And they're going to have to announce a test on that at right. some point. I mean, you it would think, will it be this next term? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Well, so getting into that a little bit, um, or going a little bit beyond that, I guess. So the, let's say the Supreme Court. Um, well, I, I think I just want to talk briefly here about why. Uh, the effect that a Supreme Court ruling is going to have, regardless of 
what it ends up being um, on on how these cases are litigated from both ends of uh, you know the, the right. argument and um, because I think you know if you see I, I think that there's a how the Supreme Court decides this case is going to really have a major impact on the strategies of both uh, parties interested party here parties here whether you're gun control advocate or gun rights advocate um, you know if the court punts on this case I think that's the most obvious like easy thing to predict what'll happen after that which is just basically um, you'll you'll continue to see the lower courts um, in more liberal districts uh, uphold basically every gun law that that's being challenged so this California assault weapons ban being struck down the Ninth Circuit will simply uh, reverse the decision and uphold it uh, if the Supreme if, if the Supreme Court signals that they're going to punt again on the Second Amendment and they're not really <laughs> going to do uh, necessarily anything uh, moving forward. No, I think that's probably the most the least likely outcome, right? Uh, as you you talked about earlier. Uh, but if the Supreme right. Court signals by striking down the New York law, however they do it, whether they issue a standard or not. Um, then I think that changes a lot uh, in terms of what gun right or gun control activists do, uh, or a lot of the Democrats who are defending these stricter gun laws, um, like the ones in California, because then the question becomes like, how do they respond to that? Um, and I think that for me, the most reasonable um, strategy that I've heard put forward as to what they'll likely do is basically minimization, um, which is what you mm -hmm. saw with the the last New York case that the Supreme Court took up, right? They, instead of getting a ruling they didn't want, they uh, they changed the law and just gave the plaintiffs what they wanted in order to avoid setting a precedent. You know, they had defended that law all the way up until it got to the Supreme Court, and then suddenly they reversed themselves and said, never mind, <laughs> we are, we're going to change the right. law. We don't want this case to go forward. And, and the court at that point... Uh, basically agree like agreed to let them do that and uh you saw the same thing in dc right they law with their gun carry law they um ha used to have a total ban on gun carry altogether uh, there was no way to get a permit no mm -hmm. one could legally carry a gun in the city uh no civilian at least and uh that got struck down so they put in a may issue law similar to the one in new york and maryland and elsewhere and then that got struck down and Right. So they had to decide at that point between uh, appealing that decision to the Supreme Court or just accepting it and trying to find some solution that they could live with. And they decided to, uh, I guess, bite the bullet is uh, perhaps the the uh, proper term here and just not appeal a decision and Im implement, you know, their version of shall issue, which includes, of course, you know, a lot of fees and uh, a special training regiment, uh, which to be fair is not totally uncommon. Some states do that. North Carolina does that. Um, but uh, it's very expensive process and it's a very long training course that costs a lot of money. So that's what they ended up doing instead of trying to appeal to the Supreme Court and worry that they would uh, lose essentially. Um, and so I yeah. feel like you could see a lot of that happen um, from the attorney generals involved in defending these laws 
but also you could see a lot of uh, courts practice minimization as well by issuing very narrow rulings in favor of the gun rights plaintiffs um, and then not really giving them what they actually want and forcing them essentially to start over again, uh, maybe ruling, you know, as applied, something is as applied to the particular plaintiffs. This is unconstitutional. You know, there's a lot of ways that they can uh, avoid, uh, you know, landmark cases, making it to the court through the way that they rule on something. Is that what you expect to happen? What do you see coming? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So. Basically, what will happen is that, you know, and this this isn't just a Second Amendment thing. This is just the way things work in life (laughs) is is if you have, for example, a blue jurisdiction and it gets a court and a court strikes down a a regulation that is very important to the voters of that jurisdiction. Okay, you're going to have the legislators in that jurisdiction are going to be have every incentive to minimize the effect of that ruling. Every incentive. So um, let's say, you know, um, the Supreme Court strikes down New York's law and says you have to have a permitting process that is a shall, a, a, shall, a version of a shall issue permitting process. Like we said earlier, I doubt they'll say, well, the permit can't cost any more than X number of dollars. I doubt they'll be as so precise as to say the permit process has to take no longer than X amount of time. You know, that would be unusual for the court to lay it all out like that. They might say something that the permitting process can't be so burdensome that it effectively results in a denial of the right to carry. Um, But they're probably not because there's, multiple different kinds of permitting processes. My permitting process in Tennessee, when I got a uh, conceal, uh, a handgun carry permit, we didn't call them concealed carry permits in Tennessee, but handgun carry permit in Tennessee, before we went permitless carry, I did it pretty quickly. Um, and just all the scheduling and making sure I could get the course done and the fingerprinting and all of that, it still took a few months for it to happen. And that's in a state that was very gun rights friendly. And so um, what you would see is a lot of these jurisdictions saying, okay, well, we're going to make the permit cost as much as we can possibly make it cost without it being immediately struck down in court. Or we're going to make the courses that we ask you to take to be as long and burdensome as possible without them being immediately struck down (laughs) in court. And so and so that's what you'll see happen. And. And so, you know, then you go into this whole litigation phase of, well, just like with D.C. and Heller is, well, did you really do what you're supposed to do here? Or did you do the minimum that the Supreme Court said, but it's really the Supreme Court really wanted you to be more open than you are, Um, which is, you know, one of the reasons why when it comes right down to it. Um, in the absence of these very sweeping Supreme Court rulings, which again are very rare, they're very rare in all categories of law, they're they're rare. In the absence of these very sweeping Supreme Court rulings, that's why um, you know a lot of our our uh, rights are protected more by legislation than we realize. And the Second Amendment is no exception to that. I mean. Um, I, I enjoy a wide, uh, a, a broad gun, 
uh, degree of gun rights here in Tennessee. And 99% of that is state legislation, not judicial right. rulings. And so the Supreme Court might make that 2% of that is ju- judicial ruling and 98% is state regulation or maybe three years down the road, it might be 5% of that is judicial rulings and 95% is state legislation. But um, I don't... Sure, but the balance is going to be very different in a blue, in oh, a yeah. blue state, oh, yeah. I, I would imagine. Um, but uh, real quick, just last last point on this uh, topic. Uh, what, so let's say that uh, you know the Supreme Court uh, strikes down New York's uh, gun carry uh, you know regime and but doesn't necessarily you know they, they do a more incremental like you're talking about and they don't necessarily issue a, a solid standard uh, to, as to which to judge uh, Second Amendment cases by what effect do you think that will have on litigation in the Ninth Circuit on the assault weapons ban in California like what just to just to dial it in like on a specific example how do you think the ninth circuit will handle that case how do you think the attorney general of california will handle that case uh if the supreme court essentially signals that hey we're going to start taking more second amendment cases oh they're going to defend this assault weapons ban to the to the end <laughs> i think that the attorney general of california and the governor there's there would be a huge political price to pay if they didn't just if they didn't fight tooth and nail for the assault weapons ban in California. So um, I think they'll defend it, at, you know, all the way to the Supreme Court. And now the interesting thing is it's, it's far from clear that this case that the Supreme Court decides um, next term, it's far from clear whether it'll have anything to do at all with the legal standard apl- applicable to the California assault weapons ban. But I, uh, No, it probably won't, but I think the signal there would be I guess my mind is that if if they rule on a Second Amendment case, uh, especially with the new makeup of the court, um, that signals – like if they don't just – Yeah. Pump, right? I would imagine that sends a signal to lower courts that they're going to be more active on this Maybe. issue. And so they need to be more <laughs> – uh, I've I don't seen know, the, diligent. In maybe their rulings, I've seen this movie before, though. You know, like yeah. Heller was going to be the signal of a new era of Second Amendment jurisprudence, and then all of a sudden it was like walking into a brick wall. Um, and the interesting thing about both Barrett and Kavanaugh is that their jurisprudence so far has been original, much more originalist than many prior judges, justices, but cautious. So they have not been super bold. Um, they've been absolutely what you would call judicial conservatives, you know, originalist, textualist, but they've not been super bold. And so um, that's the big question. And I think the main signal that you'll see isn't the main signal isn't the fact that they took this case because this was overdue. I mean, it was so overdue to take a bearing arms case that I couldn't believe they hadn't done it yet. Like, I was gobsmacked they hadn't done it yet. But the real signal will be, what does this ruling say? And if this ruling announces a new test, um, or, you know, if this ruling has um, some expansive elements that I don't anticipate, um, you know, in an interesting way, that may actually mean that they don't take another case super fast because they'll want to mm. see what this new standard does in the courts below. 
So what they might then do is do something that's called GVR. So what a GVR is something called a grant vacate remand. So sometimes when the court establishes a new test, it'll still have a bunch of cases that are have been appealed to the Supreme Court, but they're, the court hasn't acted on them yet. It hasn't denied appeal. It hasn't taken the appeal. And so sometimes what the court will do is when it announces a new test, it will take all of these cases, like that's are all these Second Amendment cases that are just hanging out, waiting to see if the court will review them. And the court will GVR them all. And it'll say, we grant cert, we vacate the lower court ruling, and we remand it for further consideration at the lower court consistent with the opinion we just announced in X or Y. And so what that, that moves the law a lot, but it doesn't mean the Supreme Court's going to move soon. It just means that the lower courts, so all of this stuff is sort of, it can be so complicated, it can make your head hurt because, you know, one of the things I think a lot of folks sort of in the public who are not familiar with constitutional law think, and and part of this is because of cases like Roe, uh, which, you know, created a right to abortion in all 50 states, or Obergefell, which is the recent gay marriage case. They think of the Supreme Court rulings as very decisive, that the Supreme Court settles stuff. And yet it does, but it settles, by and large, it settles cases. It doesn't settle issues and the issues get settled slowly over time through lots of cases but it can take so long so long for a lot of the, I, I remember you know one of the, and you you'll sometimes see issues settled without the supreme court ever decisively weighing in i mean for example i worked for a long time to try to get rid of speech codes on college campuses and it is now settled law like it is settled law that if you try to implement a speech law and a speech code on college campuses, you're going to lose. But the Supreme Court has never ruled on a modern campus speech code. <laughs> it's just all the lower courts settled these cases over years and years. So it's so hard right. to predict what they'll do. But if there is a big new test announced, watch for a lot of GVRs. That would be all, yeah. all of these other lower court cases or all these other appeals to the Supreme Court, they say, we're vacating the judgment, remanding. Now apply the new test we just announced. Yeah, right. right. Certainly, that would be very interesting. I mean, we'll have to see exactly what they do because obviously it's going to have some very serious yeah. consequences moving forward for everyone in the country. I would, I would think. Um, but uh, I just wanted to turn for a moment here to uh, red flag mm -hmm. laws. Uh, we talked about permitless carry earlier a little bit, um, and that's sort of been the fastest growing state level gun policy over the last decade you know went from two states to 21 states in just about a decade here uh, that have adopted permitless carry um, now of course almost all of these are states that are triple red you know, right republicans control all of the levers of government in those states uh, and there's only i believe four states left florida ohio uh, indiana and Georgia that don't have the policy that are triple red. Um, so, you know, it might be running out of steam there, but uh, obviously it's had huge, huge, uh, you know, adoption over the last uh, 10 years. And uh, at the same time, we've seen red flag laws have a similar, uh, you know, huge upward slope in their adoption uh, in mostly uh, in uh, triple blue right. states. Uh, so there's 
nine, there's 15 triple blue states right now, and there's 19 red flag laws. So it's actually punched above its weight a little bit there, uh, probably because it pulls uh, pulls better than than permitless carry does. But um, regardless, uh, I think the interesting question here uh, is what your take on red flag laws are in practice, because you were one of the early, you know, proponents for this basic concept of, of you know, uh, these temporary uh, emergency orders to uh, remove someone's guns if they're in a uh, state of crisis uh, or if, if there's evidence that they've, um, you know, uh, are planning to harm themselves or others, right? And, uh, but in practice, I wonder, uh, what your thoughts are on how these have actually been implemented and whether or not um, uh, they have the, the requisite due process protections uh, that they should, because that's been, I think, the main criticism of them in practice. I think you have a lot of people who uh, perhaps uh, support the concept of a red flag law, but uh, have opposed them in practice. And the NRA has generally supported the concept, but has opposed all of the the uh, nineteen that have been enacted because they don't believe there's strong enough due process protections or and and I think there's also a common critique about uh, it doesn't really solve the problem because all all these laws do uh, the ones that have passed thus far is remove the person's guns and they don't do anything else um, when presumably the person if if they're th- enough of a threat to themselves or others to remove their firearms perhaps there should be uh, you know, obviously other other measures taken as well. So uh, what, as someone who was an early supporter of these policies, what is your, what is your take on them in practice? I mean, so I think that most of the state laws are insufficiently protective of due process. Um, they're a little, they're a little too broad uh, from the, the pattern that I laid out. But I also think that in, in a many important ways, they're filling a gap that exists. So what we what we have seen there's what I would look at when I talk about gun uh, when you think about a gun death problem in the United States, you're generally looking at three uh, buckets like three groups of kinds of death: suicide, which is by far the largest. Then you have violent gun crime, which is next, and then you have mass shootings, which is a very small percentage of overall gun deaths impacts the public far out of proportion to the actual percentage of gun deaths. And you can be a gun rights advocate and you can say to people all day long, well, actually, your odds of being killed in a mass shooting are far less than being struck by lightning. You know, whatever you want to say statistically. But when somebody's looking at a, a, a massive school shooting, that has a giant impact on people. It has a giant impact on people. And I think it has always been the case that the primary threat to gun rights is gun violence in many ways. Now, sometimes gun violence can be a spur for people to purchase firearms. And so, for example, if you feel like you live in a very dangerous neighborhood, then um, that can be a spur to purchase a weapon. That can be a um, that can be a reason why you would buy a gun. Mass shootings are a little bit different. Mass shootings are a situation where um, I think of mass shootings as a, a kind of emergency and a kind of shocking event in a, in a country and in a community 
that spurs this sort of demand. We have to do something about this. And the problem is a lot of the do some things that people uh, advocate for after a mass shooting really will have nothing to do with mass shootings. Like a, you know, expanding background checks. Well, if you actually look into mass shootings, um, expanded background checks wouldn't have stopped really any mass shootings. There's this famous 2017 um, Washington Post fact check that where Marco Rubio said none of, or is it tw maybe 2015, 2016 fact check when Rubio was running for president, 2015, 2016, where he said none of the common gun control proposals would have stopped any mass shooting. And um, Washington Post fact checked it and said, true, true. Not one of the normal gun control proposals you hear after a mass shooting would stop a mass shooting. But then when you drill into a lot of these mass shootings, what do you find? What you find is people who are radiating warning signs, red flags, so to speak. And while our, our system is decent at dealing with people who are felons, um, who, you know, who at, at, you know, they're prohibited. A felon, you know, in vast majority of circumstances is prohibited from owning a weapon. And our biggest problem is... How do we then keep the felon from getting it through straw purchases, whatever? But we we have good, solid laws preventing felons. Where we have real problems is in this arena of of where somebody had you know mental health issues, personal crisis, those kinds of circumstances. We have a real problem, and we don't know what to do about that. So, for example, you know. Um, if you ask the average person, you th your uncle, your aunt is in a mental health crisis, what do you do? What do you do about the mental health crisis? Most people have no clue. They don't have any idea. So somebody can be in an actual crisis and you don't know what to do. And they're, you know, in their crisis, they might not have violated the law, but the crisis is obvious. And so we need right. better mental health um, procedures, clearer, easier to understand for people. But one of the benefits of the red flag law is that if somebody is in an obvious state of crisis, you can it's like pressing a pause on their ability to own a gun and, and harm themselves or others. And so I think that that has sure. a, a better well, – the thing I like about that as opposed to a lot of these other restrictions like – assault weapons bans, bans on large capacity magazines, all of those things absolutely totally impact by and large, almost exclusively totally law abiding people. And there's mm. no evidence that they impact criminals at all. So here you have a problem with a, um, you know, a school shooting and you say, well, I want to ban large capacity magazines and assault weapons. There's no the only thing we know that will happen if you do that is we know that law abiding people will have their second amendment rights restricted. We don't have any idea that that will necessarily restrict a, a potential school shooter. The benefit of a red flag law is that it's not a sweeping regulation. It allows you to target people based on behavior, not based on their status as a gun owner, but based on behavior. And that's why I think right. it is a I mean, much better construct. Sure, and that I mean that that's the the reasonable argument for why the general policy is a, is perhaps a good idea. But uh, obviously, in practice, you still have a lot of the same concerns uh, in that 
yes, it's not a large group of people who are having their rights restricted, uh, but it but it is a problematic on an individual level for a lot of people because the standards that have been used thus far in a lot of these laws um, are very loose in terms of uh, you know taking someone's rights away even temporarily, right? I mean, I guess that's one of the the uh, you know, backstops for why for the for this policy um, uh, being abused is that it's only temporarily. Mm-hmm. But um, at the same time, like the you know, generally shouldn't the standard for uh, depriving someone of their rights, even temporarily, be very high? Um, and, and shouldn't we practice the same sorts of uh, you know s- standards we have for due process in in other areas where we're restricting someone's right, like, you know, when we're putting them in prison. Well, or, uh, so there's a, that's an interesting like that. question. And there's been a lot of like ignorant commentary around it uh, because uh, people. So, yes, the, the bottom line is when you're talking about a temporary deprivation of a constitutional right, um, there is actually a pretty well-developed body of case law around that. And, and so, for example, you can have so the the basic view is when you're talking about a temporary deprivation of a constitutional right that there has to be some degree of due process now you would be surprised <laughs> to know that the high that the level of due process is not that's required by federal court by constitutional law is not as nearly as high as you're uh, you know stating when you're comparing um, re- a temporary removal of guns or a temporary let's take an example of a domestic protective order okay mm-hmm. so this is very common and this is something that happens all over the United States of America and this limits your ability to see your wife see your children go to your own home I mean these are big sweeping orders far more sweeping and impacting your life far more than taking your firearms for two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is. And in many jurisdictions, you can be, you can, a person can go in to a judge and get a protective order, barring you from your own home and from, um, you know, from seeing your kids on an emergency basis before you even have a chance to challenge it. And Mm -hmm. so um, now you have an ability. That's one part that a lot of people do have problems with, right? Is the, I guess President Trump, uh, former President Trump, sort of articulated the the worst fear of a lot of people with this, which was you know take the guns first and then mm-hmm. then do and then do process, which is kind of I think for a lot of people is upsetting. Like it sort of uh, you know defeats the purpose of due but process. The, but to the some due degree. process occur. So so basically, mm-hmm. if you have an emergency, and this is common in a lot of areas of law. You you can go in and it's called ex parte. You can get orders ex parte on an emergency basis. But then the due process protection comes in that you're allowed to immediately challenge so that you can then immediately challenge. And and my general view on it is that an emergency, if you can prove an emergency according to a high standard of proof, then um, that's that's constitutionally fine. As long as the person then has the ability to come in and immediately challenge, um, sure. the and I guess the issue has been the issue has been with that standard of proof. Yeah, uh, in that's a, a that is that where you that's see the issues? issue. <laughs> that's yeah. the issue. 
So what standard of proof do you pref- would you prefer? I think it should be a clear and convincing. So you, you generally have the standards of proof that generally occur in the United States are um, proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard that is the standard to put someone in prison, to deprive them of their liberty for a set amount of time, almost all of their liberties. Because once somebody's in prison, I mean, you know, think of the layers of liberty that are they're stripped from that person. That's generally the standard of proof to separate someone from their freedom. Proof beyond a, um, a preponderance of the evidence, like a 51%, 51, 49, or 50.1, 49.9, is what we use for civil lawsuits. So if uh, I'm going to separate you from your money <laughs> as opposed to from your liberty, it's generally going to be a preponderance of evidence. In the middle there is this thing called clear and convincing, clear and convincing evidence. So that's more than a preponderance, but less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And I've long thought that that's a good standard for uh, a temporary deprivation of a, of a fundamental constitutional right in an emergency basis, C- clear and convincing evidence. Um, and that's something that I think that should also be a general um, a general standard f- to use in, f- for example, domestic orders, um, you know, things like and that. So what, what's the standard right now for most red flag laws? Um, I mean, I don't know the standard of all of them. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, it's it, you know, it it varies, you know, pretty widely, but clear and convincing is generally not the standard. Um, you're generally yeah. going to um gosh, I don't even are some as low as probable cause? Uh, I'm just trying to think cuz the lowest possible standard is probable cause. Uh probable mm. cause is the standard that allows the government to, for example, search you, initially arrest you. Um, so you'll have probable cause, um, preponderance of the evidence, clear and convincing, and then proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And um, I'm, I, I don't know. You know, there's what eighteen states, twenty-one states. How many? How many have them? There's not. There's uh, nineteen. Nineteen. Okay. With red flags. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Vermont's with the only that. one with both, by the way. Pardon. Vermont's the only one that has a permitless carry and uh, a red flag law. Yeah, I don't know but, uh, what all the different had, standards are, but my, yeah, well, they do. These laws do go back uh, quite a ways in, in some states, um, so they you know they, they do change a bit. But I know that one of the main concerns is this lower level of of, uh, of, of evidence for the initial seizure of guns. Um, that's been one of the biggest concerns uh, out there so far, and it sounds like you share that concern. And, and uh, but yeah, still, it's you, you still like the policy. I like the policy. Concept. It's what are the details? You know, what's the old saying? Right. Devil is in the details. Devil's in the details. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and you know, so yeah, some no, of them absolutely. for um, you know some of them, for example, um, would say you keep you can see you can seize them for too long. You know, so so mm-hmm. the, you know, one of the issues is how long can you, um, how long can you? Uh, yeah, because some are up to a year. Right? Yeah. So how long can you seize? That's a, that's a big issue. Um, right. You know, so that's a that's a big, that's a big issue. Another one is like, what is a standard that you have to? Is, it, who holds the burden of proof to get them back? Um, you know, there's right. all kinds of like nuances to this where you can say, okay, I like the red flag concept because it's focused on a gap in the law. And I don't know, did you see the um, Doug Ducey's 
he commissioned a study for uh, to and, and had a um, commissioned a study to look at school shootings and suggested a series of policies to respond to school shootings. And he did something, and his commission did something that virtually no one has done in response to the school shooting issue. And that is to look at a whole bunch of proposed policies and ask, would they have made a difference in these circumstances? So for example, would expanded background checks have made a difference? Or would a, um, would a red, were there warning signs that a red flag law would be designed to, to catch? And what it found is that in a number of school shootings, a properly dra- uh, drafted red flag law would have made a difference. Again, properly drafted. And that that is a, you know, those are, those are laws that have the ability properly drafted to fill in a gap in our regulatory regime that's individually sure. targeted, not sweeping targeted against um, you know, all gun owners. And I think that that, that's the sort of the fundamental soundness of it. And then the devil's in the details from there, from there forward. Uh, Now, do you just last question here? uh, Because I know you've given us a lot of your time. I'm very grateful. Um, Do you see a specific example in practice already in one of these states that have passed this, this policy that you would point to as an ideal? Or do you still think that uh, just re- that they all need refinement. Um, just a moment. I would say I think the best one is that I have seen is um, I think Florida's is pretty solid uh, overall. I mean, if I look as a constitutional lawyer, um, there's it's hard. It's as somebody who's spent most of my career attacking laws. <laughs> I am absolutely attuned to nitpick these things um, sure. and but i would say you know florida's is is pretty solid um i think it is okay. it is it is pretty solid i there are things that i could um improve about it but o- overall i think uh florida's got a pretty solid red flag law and it's been used quite a bit uh since it was passed sure. um and so you know there's a there's a body of research about the florida red flag law that I think here in a couple of years uh, would be worth some serious, now that it's sort of had time to mature, um, there should be some serious research into the Florida, you know, what they call a risk protection order. Right. And um, the actual effect in the real world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on to the Reload Podcast. Uh, I'm very grateful that you were able to give us as much time as you did and go through all these these issues that you've written a lot about, uh, you know, throughout your career. And, uh, uh, I hope that you'll be able to come back on soon. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe after the Supreme court case, so we can hold you accountable. You know, we we might. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting no matter how it goes. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. it's going to be a case that spawns a thousand op-eds and law review articles. That's for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that's it for uh, our interview here with David French of The Dispatch. Make sure you head over to thedispatch.com to uh, subscribe to uh, the, their many newsletter offerings, um, including David's, uh, and, uh, and also to his podcast where uh, he just discusses more uh, legal 
questions of the day, uh, every day, not just guns, but all sorts of issues. And that's very insightful. Um, and I uh, will hope to have you back on real soon. Yeah. David, well, thank you. We're gonna, there's going to be cases to talk about. There's no question. Oh, but yeah. Thanks for having me, and congratulations on the, the launch of Reload, and you, you, you're just killing it. You're doing great work. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's very kind. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of the Weekly Reload podcast. I really appreciate you guys tuning in to hear some hard news reporting and maybe a little bit of interesting insight from David French there. Um, I hope to continue to have guests with that level of uh, knowledge going forward. You know, this podcast, I think I'm going to try and make uh, about presenting long form interviews with with really people who have great insight into the topic, who are knowledgeable, people who are experts, um, people who aren't just going to come on and and sort of repeat the same talking points that you've probably already heard a uh, hundred times over on any uh, you know cable news opinion show that's out there. Um, so that's my goal here with this podcast, and I hope that you guys will submit um, some people in the comments down below or replying to uh, one of the members' newsletters. Uh, who exactly you'd like to see on in the future um, and what kind of topics you want to see me cover with this podcast, uh, get a little more in depth, do that whole, you know, uh, hour long feature, <laughs> get some, some really uh, interesting nuggets by digging down into the depths of each conversation. Um, so Please absolutely reach out uh, through the comments or through email to me and let me know who you want to see and what you want to hear talked about on the next episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I will see you guys again real soon. Remember, members get this a day early, so go ahead and sign up if you haven't already. Uh, and otherwise, I will talk to you again real soon. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. I had one friend, now there's none I made the devil run I broke so many bones But none of them